We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. You are listening to On The Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle of the Action Network in Rotoviz. Welcome to the May 24th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Matt, I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, I mean... This is the Coca-Cola 600. This is one of the best racing weekends in the world. Uh, I'm just, I'm so excited. We just came off of the all-star race, which was certainly interesting. I know we'll talk about that a little bit as well in this show, but, uh, yeah, good to, good to kind of have a, you know, uh, a super racing weekend because, man, there's just, there's so much goodness. There's just like, you'll, we'll talk about it. I'm just so excited about this weekend. This is your Super Bowl. For you, this is sort of like the, uh, like the triple crown of racing with like all of the races on one day. Yeah, exactly. It's just unfortunate that you can't have the same horse in all three races, but, uh, (laughs) we have seen some people do the double in the past, at least for the two American races. And, uh, last year we saw, F1's Fernando Alonso come over to the U.S. and race the Indy 500. He did not race the F1 race, though. He had a replacement driver for his ride in F1. And uh, he had a very real chance of winning the Indy 500 before his engine expired uh, about two-thirds of the way through the race while he was uh, racing for the lead. So 
Um, definitely an exciting weekend of racing. Nobody's doing the double this year. No uh, F1 drivers are coming over to, to the Indy 500 this year, but that'll definitely happen. You know, every every two or three years, you'll get some kind of exciting story like that. And I will say uh, there is the exciting story with Danica Patrick in her final race this year yeah, for the, the Indy 500. The, uh, the final leg of the Danica double. Yeah, That's right, the Danica yeah. double, the Daytona 500, which unfortunately she crashed out in. It would have been good to see her have a chance and – um, you know, the big ones happen at Daytona and unfortunately she got swept up in it, but Indy typically doesn't have big ones. Um, sometimes, you know, they'll have two car, occasionally three or four car crashes, but they usually don't have uh, eight or 10 or 12 car crashes. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into it here. As you mentioned, it is the biggest racing weekend of the year. We have the triple header of high profile races spread across the globe. So formula one has its crown jewel race the monaco grand prix and then a couple hours later indycar has the quote-unquote greatest spectacle in racing the indianapolis 500 and as we mentioned that is danica patrick's final career race and then of course nascar has one of its four quote-unquote major races the coca-cola 600 at charlotte motor speedway uh nick (laughs) every year (laughs) for this weekend you have, um, I'm trying to think of the right way, like a respectful way of calling to attention how ridiculous your uh, your, your ritual is for this weekend <laughs> of racing. But talk about what it is that you do every year for this ultimate race day. Yeah, so obviously with the, the triple header, and it was a lot easier, I'll say, when I lived on the East Coast uh, in North Carolina because it, it made for a much better uh, sequence of events in terms of our body clocks. But uh, so for those of you on the East Coast, I actually highly recommend doing this. The Monaco Grand Prix starts at eight in the morning on the East Coast. So 5 a.m. Pacific time. So since I'm on Pacific time, it's a little, a little different this year. But 8 a.m. is the Monaco Grand Prix. And my wife and I would always make kind of a European themed breakfast. So very often we make crepes um, because Monaco is really near France. It's also near Italy, but also near France. So we make crepes, and then we'd have like Bellinis, uh, you know, the Italian alcohol drink. So it's essentially like champagne with some kind of like fruit uh, puree type thing. I don't know how to exactly describe it. My wife makes them really well, but uh, so we'd have like a, a, a breakfast, European themed breakfast and European themed drink for 8 a.m. And uh, yeah, I think crepes was always perfect. It was always the go-to. Then I, I, sorry, I, I have a question. I, I have to. Yeah, what is the European themed drink? The the Bellini. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes, so um, it's just like champagne and some kind of like fruit thingy. I don't know how to describe the fruit thingy. Yes. But okay. uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just, just that was, that was a bad question. Continue. Yeah. Terrible question. Well, you're a little rusty. We had a week off from right, uh, yes. potting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but. Uh, then, of course, at noon is the Indy 500, and so that's perfect for lunchtime. So we do some kind of Midwestern breakfast. Very often you think of like, you know, either Midwestern barbecue or those Midwestern diners, and you do some kind of really good Midwestern breakfast, very often with corn. Uh, obviously, the Midwest is known for its corn, so you could do a lot of uh, corn dishes. You could do pork dishes, things like that. Uh, and then you'd have a Midwestern drink, so... You know, Indianapolis isn't too far from Kentucky. Sometimes we do Kentucky bourbon. Sometimes we do uh, a grain alcohol, like a grain beer. But like, there's one that's just called like I think it's like grain beer or something like that. That's out there, uh, or some other kind of Midwestern beer. There's a lot of good ones in Michigan, like Bell's. 
Um, so we do some kind of Midwestern alcohol along with lunch. And then uh, for, you know, NASCAR racing at night, dinner time. I mean, what gets more American than like Budweiser's and uh, I don't know, burgers or, or wings or whatever the hell you want uh, with chicken and waffles. I mean, who knows? So uh, that's what we do every year. So this year, um, we haven't totally finalized our menu and obviously being on the West Coast, 5 a.m., then 9 a.m., and then like uh, three, 2 or 3 in the afternoon uh, doesn't quite fit the body clocks, but uh, we're still going to do it. We're still going to do it. I think my wife is going to sleep in for the Monaco Grand Prix, but I will get up and I plan on having at least uh, something like a mimosa. I don't think I know how to make a Bellini, but uh, I'll make a mimosa at least. And uh, then uh, for, for Indy, we're going to have a Midwestern brunch this year, so... Uh, I think she's figuring it out. She wants to do something like, again, like diner style, like your all-American diner breakfast. Uh, and then uh, for, for I guess, like three in the afternoon for, I don't know what you call that, two or three in the afternoon. It's not like lunch, but it's not dinner. Um, but we're probably going to... It's Or if, you're, dinner, a, if right? you're a hobbit, it's, you know, like second lunch. Yeah, exactly. So um, fortunately, I'm a little bit taller than a hobbit. But uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think we're going to do some kind of combination of maybe some dry rub wings and uh, something else that, you know, my, my wife will probably pick out the other thing, but I think I want to make dry rub wings. So, and then smoke them in the smoker. So that'll be a lot of fun, but it's really cool. And then the other thing we do each year, um, which I think you guys will get a kick out of for, for you gamblers out there is my wife and I, we allocate ourselves a hundred dollars um, in, in any a hundred dollars, like not actual hundred dollars, but fake a hundred dollars, like monopoly money. And we can take that $100 and bet it on all three races uh, to pick driver to win or um, using any head-to-head props. And we usually just take them off of uh, whatever site you can get them on. So, of course, we'll be using my bookie this year to get uh, the head-to-head props or any pick-to-win props. And whoever ends up with the most dollars at the end of the three races – so you can bet – you can take your $100 and – Splice them up any way you want among the three races, and whoever ends up with the most money uh, will win. And, and if we both end up with zero dollars, then we suck. Uh, we are like eight minutes into the show. We haven't talked really about anything super relevant, uh, but I have so many questions that I have to talk about here. Uh, one, um, how how has this gone since you've done the move to Vegas because what I could see is what would have been a um, like a perfect day on the East Coast turns into a horrible day in Vegas because you continue you have like an extra couple of hours there uh, at night where you just like maybe continue to drink you have maybe like three more drinks than you otherwise would have and then that could that could really ruin the day so how has the experience been with the transition to Vegas? Yeah, well, also we were, you know, we were like six months into our lives in Vegas there at, at this point last year. Um, so it was like we moved to Vegas September 2017 or uh, for me, October. So maybe a little more than six months, seven, eight months into Vegas. But uh, our first time doing this, as you mentioned, on the West Coast, and it definitely threw off our body clocks. I think we ended up going to the strip that night. And I think because Dina, my wife, has a Monday off because it's Memorial Day. Uh, we ended up staying out until like 6 a.m. or something uh, at the strip. So it oh, didn't 
didn't end up too well in terms of our body clocks, but yeah. we had a lot of fun. Uh, so I don't think that's the plan this year. So fortunately, I think uh, we got that out of us as newbies. But well, uh, Nick, yeah. no one plans to end up on the strip at 6 a.m. in the morning. It just, just kind of happens. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, last year was 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 wild because you, know, you had Takuma Sato winning the Indy 500 and I uh, – I bet him. I think it was like I can't remember. I think it was fifty to one he opened at, and I bet him, and he won. So uh, we went out celebrating, and uh, I, I always like the Indy Five Hundred. There's a lot of good odds on the race um, most years. Yeah, um, it helps. I think that uh, your wife is particularly interested in food, so I think she could be uh, very good at coming up with a menu for this type of uh, global festival that you guys have. Absolutely. I mean, she's she loves making food and uh, she's got all these brilliant ideas. And every every year we sit down and we plan a menu. I think we're actually going to do that tonight is plan our official menu for Sunday. Uh, so unfortunately, I can't tell you guys, but uh, yeah, absolutely. She's an amazing chef, cook, whatever you want to call it. Uh, she makes really good food. Let's just say that. And uh she also likes to have uh, a lot of fun with the the event. So some years we have friends over, some years we've done it by ourselves. I think we're going to have friends over for the now that we actually have friends in Vegas. Last year it was, you know, our first year here and it yeah. was tough making new friends, but now that we actually have friends here, we're going to have friends over this year. So it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. And one thing I did want to say, I think we're going to have to like tweet out like if you want to ignore all of this uh non-DFS related stuff like Start the pod at like X time or whatever. <laughs> no, that's that's bullshit. They they have to listen through. Yeah, uh, suffer or, through. Or, this. They, they, or they can they can fast forward. Whatever. We, Air quotes. We, we don't All of, also one other thing. Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup Finals. Baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's an all around fantastic time for you. By the way, I have to give you uh, props, which I wasn't even planning on punning there, but props on your my bookie drop in there, which was that was like very professional. Like so this year. We're obviously consulting my bookie, so uh, that was very nicely done. Yeah, well, I mean uh, that's the go-to site to uh, get get great yeah. odds and great payouts really quickly. Yeah, you're you're a good com- company man. That's fantastic. Well, since we're already there, I might as well do the my bookie read, and then we can just uh, get on with the rest of the show. So, if you are subscribing to the Road of His NASCAR package, then you have access to a lot of great tools and data. With all of the research that you're doing, you should place some NASCAR bets at mybookie.ag. They have a variety of future bets and head-to-head props for each race. I bet the props at mybookie each week. You should check them out. The mybookie NASCAR futures and props are fun, and they are a great way to leverage your Rotovis subscription and supplement your NASCAR DFS action. So join now, and mybookie will match your deposit up to a 50% bonus. Use the promo code NASCAR to activate the offer. Visit bookie, mybookie.ag today. Play, win, and get paid. Uh, Nickleby, that was a great show. I think we should basically just uh, end it there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that was beautiful. We had we, had, we discussed everything. Uh, the food, important things, food. Betting, yeah. uh, drinking on the strip. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was a good show. Okay, so... Uh, let's get into it. We're recording this on Thursday evening, which uh, is atypical, um, especially considering that there is the race on Sunday. So NASCAR has Friday off, and then there are two practice sessions. And first of all, what, what do they mean Friday off? Come on, everyone else in the country is working on Friday. Anyway, okay, they, they have Friday off. Then the two practice sessions on Saturday, 
the race is on Sunday. How does this schedule uh, impact anything that you are doing content or playing wise for the weekend? Yeah, well, with Friday off, uh, it'll be a good day to get all of the apps prepared as much as possible ahead of time uh, so that as soon as, you know, both practice sessions are done Saturday, uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be in the books with, um, you know, all the all the data updated and, and everything like that. So uh, I'll, I'll have everything ready on Friday as much as I possibly can, but I can't give you guys picks or anything like that. Excuse me, anything like that until uh, all the final on-track activity Saturday. So Saturday, kind of an interesting schedule as well. 9 a.m. Eastern time, so that's 6 a.m. for me. So I had to wake up really early on Saturday. Uh, 6 a.m. for me, 9 a.m. for East Coast people. Monster Energy Cup Series practice, and then the so that's the first post-qualifying practice, and then 11 a.m. Eastern time is the final practice, and that goes till five minutes before noon. Um, so it starts five minutes after 11 and then five minutes before noon, 50 minute practice, final practice. So practice will be over by 9 a.m. for me on Saturday. Uh, but I'll have all of the apps and everything ready to go. I'll just need to input practice data, run the model, run the ownership model. Uh, I'll have a good idea of, uh, you know, who I want to write up, especially after opening practice. So hopefully the article will be out within 30, 45 minutes after final practice. And then it's just a quick update of the apps and everything will be ready to go. Um, so, yeah, don't expect any content until a, right after final practice on Saturday. However, it should be very quick after final practice on Saturday and very early for everybody. I mean, it ends even for you East Coasters. It ends at noon. Everything should be ready, hopefully by 1 or 1.30 p.m., uh, including the article and the apps and all of that jazz. And then we just have to schedule Rotoviz Live. Uh, and so... I think what we'll do is we'll do Rotoviz live on Saturday evening. Um, again, I'll pick a time to record it so it won't actually be live, but uh, that'll give you guys as much chance as possible to get your questions in. We'll we'll record Rotoviz live Saturday evening, and then I'll upload it to rotoviz.com/live, uh, and then you'll have all Saturday evening and all Sunday during the day while you're watching Monaco, while you're watching uh, the Indy 500. Get your lineup set up, rewatch, you know, digest the information, uh, check out Road of His Live if you missed it, like Saturday evening. Um, plenty of time because, yeah, I mean, there will be tons of time to, to watch Road of His Live. So it also gives people plenty of time to get their questions in. So that's the schedule for this weekend. But uh, I, I kind of like the Thursday qualifying and then Friday off. It gives me more time to prep everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely nice in terms of uh, the content. So, yeah, everyone be sure to check out the article and the apps at Rotoviz. And uh, I should just tell you, in, in case this is your first time ever listening to the show and somehow you are still listening to this point, that you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. Uh, okay. Charlotte Motor Speedway, 600 miles of racing. Uh, that's the longest race on the NASCAR schedule. Can you talk about uh, the uniqueness of this event, uh, especially given the the stages and how the races typically play out at the Coca-Cola 600? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is obviously with 600 miles, there's just a whole 100 extra miles for things to go wrong uh, or things to go right, I guess, depending on the way you look at it. But uh, yeah, um, the, so 600 miles at a one and a half mile track is 400 laps. So in this particular race, we have 
four stages instead of three stages. So each stage is a hundred miles long, sorry, a hundred laps long. Uh, so 150 miles. And, uh, the only race that we have four stages, if somehow weather were to be a factor, the end of stage two would still be an official race. But, uh, it looks like we're more than 90% good to go at we- in terms of weather for this weekend. So, uh, should get the full race in. No reason not to. So we can expect 400 laps, 600 miles of racing. Uh, the other things about this race, obviously with, with the, the extra hundred miles, there's, like I said, a hundred more miles for things to go wrong. Uh, maybe an extra engine failure or maybe an extra crash, uh, just because there's more laps. And then additionally, um, you know, there's, there's just that much more chance for strategy to come into play. There's more, more possibilities of when you can pit why you should pit, uh, possible cautions on how to change things up, you know, to, to change the strategy up. Very often we see fuel mileage winners. Um, you know, obviously we saw that with, uh, with Austin Dillon last year. Sometimes we don't. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting race and there's a lot of ways this race could play out, but very often, uh, strategy does come into play. I mean, the year Dale Earnhardt Jr. almost won it. He ran out of gas in the last corners of the last lap. Uh, Austin Dillon did steal a win on fuel mileage. I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Carl Edwards or Greg Biffle. One of them stole a win on fuel mileage in the 600. Uh, we've seen, you know, first time winners in the 600. Dillon last year, Casey Mears several years ago. Uh, so anything can happen in this race with that extra hundred miles. I think with the stages, it changes it a little bit, but not a ton. Obviously with, you know, last year is the first year of the stages. We still had a fuel mileage event. So, um, certainly anything can happen in this event. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a unique track, a unique, I wouldn't say unique track, but a unique race because of the, the circumstances with the stages and the extra 100 miles. Uh, okay. Let's talk about strategy. Last year, you won a qualifier at this very race. Uh, you faded Kyle Larson, who was starting 39th out of 40. Uh, this year, we have a very similar situation. Kevin Harvick did not make a qualifying lap. Uh, and so he is starting, uh, again, 39th out of 40, just as Larson did last year. Uh, additionally, there are no other big names in the back. So we would expect Harvick to have pretty high ownership do you think this is a situation where uh, you're looking to fade Harvick, uh, especially at higher stakes? Yeah, I mean, this is so crazy that it, it in you know two years in a row, essentially, we've had the exact same situation in the exact same race. Um, 39th out of 40 both times with Kyle Larson last year and Harvick this year, uh, and you know, no other drivers uh, that, like we said, that are big names. You know, a lot of times we have a lot of people who fail inspection. You'll know, get four or five or six big name drivers way back there. Um, but, but this year, you know, we don't we don't have that happening. We've got Kevin Harvick uh, as the only big name driver way back there. Um, I guess you could kind of count Clint Boyer in 28th, but uh, it's not the same as starting like 38th or 37th or 36th. So. Uh, Harvick way back there, 39th out of 40, just like Larson last year. The big difference, of course, is the price tag. Um, Harvick this year, $12,200 in this event, uh, this weekend. Whereas Larson, I think, was in the 9K range last year. So, um, certainly a big difference with price. The other thing is, we don't know practice speeds yet. Obviously, practice is important. Uh, so, 
Last year, Kyle Larson had good practices. Will Harvick have good practices this year? That remains to be seen, but we'd expect so with Kevin Harvick, especially in the long run, as Kevin Harvick is uh, likely to do there with you know the 15 or 20 lap average. He he, he dials in his car for the long run. So I, I do think we can expect Harvick to have high ownership percentage. Uh, whether that makes him a fade, I think at the lower stakes. It doesn't necessarily make him a fade. Uh, he was lower owned at the lower stakes last year in qualifiers, um, whereas at the high, or I should say Larson last year was lower owned than at the higher stakes. Last year at the higher stakes, I was the only person in uh, one of the one of the high stakes qualifiers to fade. Or sorry, one of two people in in one of the high stakes qualifiers to fade Larson. Uh, in the other high stakes qualifier, which was even higher stakes, uh, like thousand dollars, there was nine people entered, and all nine of us played Har- played Larson in that one. Um, but uh, yeah, I faded Larson in the the other high stakes one uh, intentionally, and uh, actually I posted a YouTube video about that, so I'll probably link to that in the article again this year. Link to that YouTube video explaining the theory and why and all that. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely possible if Harvick is going to be that highly owned. I think it does make sense fading him in qualifiers. The question is, will he be that highly owned? So um, that's the thing we need to figure out. Has the has you know has the theory evolved? Has uh, has things changed? So uh, if he's going to be if if Harvick's going to be that highly owned in some of these qualifiers, absolutely, I think fading him makes a ton of sense. Given you know the DNF rate at Charlotte is I should say not the DNF rate, but the incident rate. It's around 25.5% of the cars. So 40 cars, you can expect around a quarter of them on average to have significant problems, um, not even minor problems, but significant problems to put them multiple laps down. Uh, and then you've also got the ones who may have a minor problem late in the race. So you can expect at least 10 cars to have problems. That means there's a very real chance Harvick could have a problem in this race. Uh, okay. I have what I think is actually a pretty decent question. Out of the incident rate... I would expect that a pretty decent percentage of uh, the cars who don't finish or who, who do have incidents in any given race, a high percentage of those cars are the back markers. Uh, so, like, out of the cars that you don't just automatically expect to suck uh, and to run into some issues, what is the kind of, like, quote-unquote, like, true incident rate, uh, just kind of ballpark that we would maybe expect to see from the cars uh, at this particular track or or for this race? Absolutely. So it, it's it's interesting. It's a very good question um, because, yes, there is a higher incident rate among backmarker cars, um, among the lesser-funded teams. Uh, and I will say some of the numbers are skewed by the start-and-park era where uh, drivers would start the race, park their car, take home the cash, and uh, you know their owners would take home the cash, and they'd make money by essentially using no fuel, no tires, not not damaging their car, and they'd pocket a huge check. Uh, so, you know, they would essentially use the minimal amount of resources, start the race, pocket a check, and go home. We don't have that now, especially with the charter system. Uh, we don't have start and park cars. NASCAR also changed the payout structure uh, a couple years ago. So start and parks are not as common anymore. That said... Yes, there is still a higher DNF rate among the backmarker cars, but it is pretty flat in terms of like if you were to build a predictive model of DNF rate, uh, it's not super steep. You know, the curve between your, your top tier cars and your backmarker cars, all of the backmarker cars are trying to finish races these days because they know if they can avoid the bottom four or five positions, they can really up their pay. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't pay very well to finish in the bottom four or five, but then there's a significant jump beyond that. Plus, you have the charter implications. These teams want to get charters for the future, especially the ones that don't have them now, or they want to keep their charters. So it, it's there's a lot of incentive to stay in the race these days. So the, the DNF rate is relatively flat. You know, maybe you say somebody like a, a backmarker car maybe has a 33% chance. You say maybe you say somebody like Harvick has an 18 to 20% chance or something like that would be how I would approximate it this weekend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question, really good question. Um, and I think if you were to look – over the longer term, it would be skewed by the starting parks. But I think over the past couple of years, uh, well, not I think, but I definitely over the past couple of years, it's flattened out a lot more. Okay, let's talk more about Harvick because he is the at this point, uh, you know, two practices yet to to see, but at this point, he looks like the the core driver, like the key racer for this event. Um, so you mentioned that his price point uh, is much higher than Larson's was last year. Um, similar situations, but also a uh, slight difference in that. Like Harvick is, I, I think, clearly the best racer right now in NASCAR. Like he is just totally on fire. Um, given that dynamic, how do you think ownership plays out? Given just, I mean, most expensive, but tons of place differential uh, potential with him. And then he's a total hot driver right now. Yeah, I mean, I think Larson was pretty similar last year in terms of, like, being a hot driver. He wasn't, you know, last year, obviously, Martin Truex Jr. was just a man. Uh, And then there was Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick and Keselowski kind of in a next tier uh, after after, uh, Truex. And Larson was in that tier as well. So, you know, Larson was right up there. But Harvick absolutely is the man this year. So... I, I do again. I think the price tag might be the big difference here. Where Larson was a palatable, you know, nine something ish, eight nine or nine one or nine two. I can't remember the exact number. Harvick's twelve thousand two hundred. Uh, that really, really puts a strain on your lineup. So I actually think that'll keep his ownership percentage down, even though he is absolutely the man. Um, because I think you can kind of, even this year, you can pick out like three or four of the men, and it's the same four. It's Harvick. It's it's Kyle Busch is right up there. I mean, Kyle Busch has three wins. Truex has a win, and he's been pretty dominant at these mile and a half. And we know Larson's competitive basically everywhere. So, again, you can kind of put the same four guys. Keselowski's you know, maybe right up there in fifth or something like that uh, in terms of the top quality drivers. And, and so I think we'll see similar with Harvick that what we saw with Larson last year, except maybe at the really high stakes, some of these people remember what happened last year and, you know, remember that Larson had a problem and a few more are inclined to fade him. So it becomes a really tough game theory, guessing, uh, you know, play Harvick, don't play Harvick. It, it becomes very tough. I actually think Harvick will be much closer to a, a balanced, you know, optimized ownership percentage than Larson was last year. I mean, last year, uh, Larson was 89.9% owned, I think it was, in the one that uh, I didn't, you know, that I didn't play him in, uh, that high stakes tournament uh, qualifier that I didn't play him in. Uh, and that, you know, there, I think there were only two of us, like I said, me and one other player who didn't play Larson. Uh, I don't think we'll see that with Harvick this year. I think we'll see him closer to 75 to 85% range, uh, which makes it much more optimized for, for Harvick. We talked about the DNF rate or the incident rate, maybe being around 18 to 20% for somebody of Harvick's, uh, funding and skill level. 
So I think it'll be much closer to optimize. The question is, do more at higher stakes, do a couple more people try to fade it? Um, you know, do a couple people not fade it? Uh, it's, it's really tough to say. Uh, I think at the high stakes, it's going to be very tough. I think at the lower stakes, um, you know, I think Harvick probably goes 60%, 70% owned, something like that, just because people don't know as much what they're doing in lower stakes, and they take chances. And I actually do think it makes sense to play Harvick in the higher stakes because I think his chance of being in the winning lineup is higher than what his ownership percentage would be at the low stakes. And again, when you're talking qualifier, you're only concerned with the winning lineup in a qualifier. So we're literally going by what is your winning lineup probability. Whereas, you know, when we talk about GPPs, we, we say winning lineup percentage. I say that a lot, but uh, really it also helps to cash in GPPs. Um, you know, you want to obviously have higher and higher and higher caches, but even if you min cash, it's still a profit for that particular lineup. So, um, you know, Harvick's ownership percentage uh, in, in terms of being in the winning lineup is, is probably not as high uh, in, in a GPP. So, um, you know, but in a, in a qualifier where winning is the only thing that matters, what is his chance of being in the winning lineup? Is it 75 percent? It's, you know, it's 18 percent, let's say, DNF rate. So you take that off. It's 82. Then there's a chance even if he doesn't fall in the incident rate, maybe there's a minor problem, another five, 10 percent, something like that. So I think around 75, 80 percent seems kind of optimized with Harvick. Uh, you know, in, in the 70 to 80 percent range, and I think that's where his ownership percentage will be at higher stakes. So I don't necessarily think there's a theory factor uh, with Harvick at higher stakes. But I think at lower stakes, uh, where you're only concerned with the wing lineup, and he's only maybe going to be 67 percent owned, and you know maybe his his chance to win is 75 percent. You know, be in the winning lineup. I do think Har- Harvick is a good play at the lower stakes qualifiers. So a lot of theory. I know, I, you know, it, it's it's difficult to pinpoint because we don't know it'll happen we've never seen a driver at 12,200 in this particular situation we saw larson last year but he was three thousand dollars cheaper uh so very tough to gauge harvick's ownership percentage this weekend all right well i think we all know exactly what i bring to this podcast i am a uh, meticulous researcher uh obviously a lot of research goes into these outlines that i create with no help from you uh so one thing that i just uh did some research on while you were talking there have been 12 races this year, uh, not counting last weekend's all-star race. Harvick has finished in the top five in nine of those races. Just absolutely unreal streak that he is on right now. How do you approach him in cash games versus GPPs? Yeah, uh, well, in cash games, I think you're you're playing him. Um, the issue becomes, is he too expensive if he doesn't dominate? But I still think you're playing him given what he's done at mile and a half this year. I mean, you look at the mile and a half tracks and he's just obliterated them. Uh, you know, if you remove, especially if you remove auto club speedway, which is a two mile track from the large oval categories, it gets even better because, you know, he was charging forward and have probably had the best car at auto club speedway as well, but had that wreck with Kyle Larson. Um, but you know, so if you just look at, you know, go to rotaviz.com slash NASCAR hyphen splits and use the splits app there and just look at large ovals, not as good as it would have been had you included Auto Club Speedway because of that crash. But, I mean, he's been just unreal at these tracks. Um, you know, even if you remove DNFs in the in the large oval category, Harvick finished the race at Auto Club, so it still shows up in his stats. So you'll actually want to go and pick out the 1.5-mile tracks individually, right? Pick out Atlanta, pick out Las Vegas, et cetera, pick out Kansas, uh, and, and all those tracks that he's already raced at this year that are mile-and-a-half tracks. Um, so there's there's seven mile and a half tracks, like I said, Las Vegas, Atlanta, Kansas, 
Texas we've raced at already. Uh, and then you've got three tracks we haven't raced at, Chicago, Kentucky, and Charlotte. But you take those four we have raced at, Harvick's average finish is 1.3. Uh, a driver rating of 142, where 150 is perfect. So out of four races, he has a nearly perfect driver rating, a nearly perfect you know finish. That would be like a football player four games into the season having a passer rating of 150 out of 158 or something like that. So, uh, you know, with like 10 touchdowns to one interception, like Nick Foles did that one year or something. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Harvick has just been unreal. That said, I mean, there's probably going to be a little bit of regression, but he's been bananas. So you have to play him in cash, I think. Uh, he's going to get his fastest laps. Uh, in GPPs, that's where the question is, how much do you play him? I think at the lower stakes, you, again, you probably want to play him more because he's not going to be as highly owned. At the higher stakes, you know, if you're playing the the $33 or you know $20 to $33 price range there, uh, he'll be much higher owned than at the lower stakes, I would think. So uh, more inclined to fade him. However, in a super large uh, you know, GPP like we have this weekend. Obviously, um, DraftKings has has some big contests this weekend, and they've actually added some new contests, which is kind of cool. But you look at the three hundred and sixty thousand dollar GPP; it's a ten dollar entry, so you're going to have some pretty sharp players in there playing a lot of lineups. Uh, I do think Harvick will be kind of highly owned. Um, you know, do you do you do you go super underweight on him, hope a problem happens, and give yourself a real good chance to you know cash a lot of lineups knowing it's a very risky strategy i think i think i would do it but you know i also have a high risk tolerance uh if you guys prefer you know lower risk tolerance then you know if you're multi-entering 75 80 percent harvick makes a lot of sense uh if you want to be really conservative and play 100 percent harvick i have no problem with that just because he's so safe like even if he has problems he probably will still finish 35th or 33rd or 30th, you know, uh, and, and still pick up points. It won't be great, but, um, he'll still pick up positive points. So it's a much safer strategy. So it depends on your risk, risk profile. You know, if you're single entering, um, that's much different, you know, prospect in this huge tournament. If you're a single entering and you just want to cash, you probably play him. Uh, so, um, but if you want to go big and win the whole thing, I like being underweight on Harvick in this uh, $360,000 tournament with a $100,000 first prize. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, Charlotte is a you know fairly typical one-and-a-half-mile oval. Uh, for most of those this year, it seems like uh, year-to-day performance, track-type performance, and practice are the uh, primary factors for the model. Is that the case this weekend? Or basically, what are the factors that are going into the model this weekend? Yeah, well, you nailed the first ones uh, because uh, I wrote it up that way. But yes, those three factors are all still factors. Year-to-date performance, specifically driver rating, um, more so than finishing position. Look at driver rating uh, at year-to-date. Also, track-type performance, um, especially this year. You can go, you can dip a little bit back in the last year just because we've only had uh, the four one-and-a-half-mile ovals plus auto club. Um, so you can, if you want, dip a little bit back in the last year, but I prefer to just stick to this year's one and a half mile performance. Um, or, or you can also throw an auto club if you want, but auto club is a really high tire wear and Charlotte, while it will have tire wear because we've seen some weepers kind of like we saw, we talked about at Kansas a couple weeks ago where it's a relatively new surface at Kansas and they had still had weepers. Charlotte's a little bit older surface than even Kansas. So it developed some weepers last weekend during all-star weekend and kind of threw off the schedule there. 
But uh, you will see some tire wear at Charlotte, no doubt. But uh, track, you know, still one and a half mile over performance makes a lot of sense. Year to date performance, those factors go into the model. Practice, obviously, especially long run speed. And then for Charlotte, it shows up at starting position, just like uh, Kansas two weekends ago. Starting position shows up. So essentially, the exact same factors that went into Kansas go into Charlotte. And I actually think they're pretty good comps you know, in terms of tracks for each other. The big difference being Kansas did have the variable banking, so probably a little easier to pass at Kansas and the race side by side than at Charlotte. But uh, in general, the very similar statistics go into the model this weekend. So driver rating year to date, driver rating at track type, uh, practice, long run speed, and then uh, starting position are the main factors in the model this weekend. Historically, how predictive is the model for Charlotte? Yeah, so if you look at the past um, you know, four years of Charlotte racing, and uh, that gives us eight races. We've got you know the, the two races a year at Charlotte. That gives us eight races uh, times approximately 40 drivers per race ballpark. That's a lot of data points. And so what I can do, again, is split up the data and, and build a model off most of the drivers, test them on other drivers. That part that I tested on, the R-squared, 0.615, so about 61.5% of the variance in finishing position can be explained by the factors in the model. So R squared 0.615, one of the higher end tracks. Now I will say, uh, you know, with with the extra stages here, and, you know, this year, the different aero package from a few years ago, we don't know exactly if 0.615 is is perfectly accurate, but I will say it is definitely on the higher end of tracks, so pretty predictive. So the model will be you know quite reliable, I think, this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things. Oh, by the way, I I, I don't like the uh, insinuation that you you made that uh, you wrote oh. the outline for me. I mean, come on, man. Keep, yeah, keep, we've, keep we've never keep talked about that on this show. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, again, I'm just I'm fascinated by by Harvick. Um, a question about so so two things. One, uh, is there a pretty significant difference uh, in terms of how the race goes versus the spring uh, spring versus fall Charlotte race? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because when when I wrote up this outline, I was doing my research. I was like, you know, one of the things that is a, a tipping point towards like fading Harvick, like fading Larson last year is that extra 100 miles versus a 500-mile race and the extra 200 miles versus the the other Charlotte race. All I think it does uh, is maybe just um, mix up the strategy a little bit because in general, we've actually seen the same DNF rate. Uh, we've It's actually higher for the 400-mile race. The DNF rate uh, since 2005, when we have loop data, is 26.4% for, um, or sorry, 26.2% for the the 400 mile race, and it's 25.5%. Um, so essentially a one percent difference. It's negligible, uh, not statistically significantly different. 25.5% for the 600 mile race. So DNF rate's not the same, or the incident rate. If you uh, you know if you just take recent years as well, kind of similar. And then also I built the model both on. Uh, oh, I built three models. I built one for combining. Uh, the 400 and the 600 mile races because they're all Charlotte. I built one just for the 600 mile races and I built one just for the 400 mile races and their R squares were basically all negligibly different as well. So no, there isn't. So one of the factors that I say about there being an extra 100 miles, maybe it doesn't actually come into play, but I still feel like 
you know, it, it, cognitively it, it should just like there's an extra hundred miles for things to go wrong. But maybe all that happens is things just kind of get boring. But it will say I do really believe there are you know more surprise winners in the 600 than the 400. If you go back and look at history, you know, with Casey Mears or, or Casey Kane winning in uh, the Evernham car many years ago, uh, obviously Austin Dillon last year, uh, the year that Roush stole a, a fuel mileage win, uh, the year Dale Earnhardt Jr. almost stole a fuel mileage win. So I think uh, certainly just anecdotally, there may be more differences for who wins the race, but I think Overall, when you're predicting finishing position, it's not just who wins, but how does everybody finish? Uh, it maybe doesn't shake out all of the other positions as much because people are doing these strategies to win. Uh, and so it should affect the top of the standings more than kind of the middle of the standings. If, if, if everything gets divided out and certain, you know, maybe five drivers are in one strategy and 20 drivers in the other strategy, those 20 drivers should still all shake out in the general order that you'd expect for the model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at uh, Harvick's performance in spring versus fall, basically dominant all the time. Uh, when Do you know when the last time was that Harvick at Charlotte in the spring race didn't finish in the top 10? I don't. You tell me. Uh, one second here. 2010. Wow. wow. That's unbelievable. Yep. So uh, Yeah. I mean, I think his odds of finishing in the top five even are still pretty decent. Um, I'd say okay. so. One observation from qualifying, uh, the Chevys continue to struggle. Uh, no Chevys are inside the top five. Uh, only two are in the top 10. Incidentally, there is a whole train of eight Chevys starting 20th to 27th. Uh, what do you make of that manufacturer and uh, the prospects for the Chevys going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not looking good for them. Um, the Chevys... <laughs> I mean, they just—they're not the top-tier manufacturer right now, and they still continue to trail both the Fords and the Toyotas. You know, obviously Fords have been the best this year. Toyota looked really strong in qualifying. We'll have to see how things go in race trim, but again, it still looks like the Chevys are behind. I mean, you're looking—you're looking down through this list. Like Ty Dillon's 20th, William Byron 21st, Chase Elliott 22nd, Jimmy Johnson 23rd, Bubba Wallace, Darrell Wallace Jr. 24th. Ross Chastain 25th, Casey Kane 26th, Alex Bowman 27th. I mean. You know, this is this is just like not good, especially for the Hendrick drivers. I mean, you're looking at all four Hendrick drivers right there: Bowman, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Chase Elliott, William Byron, starting between 21st and 27th. Not good. Uh, you look at the the you know the Ganassi drivers, Larson and McMurray. They're starting seventh and eleventh. You look at the Childress drivers, Austin Dillon and Ryan Newman. They're starting sixth and twelfth. So. Uh, at least in terms of qualifying speed, you know, obviously two of the Chevy teams did a bit better than the other major Chevy team. Uh, the other major Chevy team was hanging around with some of the more you know, mid-pack or even backmarker Chevys. So a uh, big struggle for for Hendrick especially. Uh, and they, they, they definitely just trailed Kyle Larson in general, Kyle Larson being the best Chevy this year by far. And Larson's been able to hang with Harvick, with uh, Kyle Busch, you know, which is a Ford and a Toyota right there. So... Uh, in general, very bad, very bad sign for Hendrick. You know, at this point last year, uh, Toyota had introduced a new um, body for its car. And at this point, they started to get a grasp of it, obviously. Um, you know, Joey Logano won that race at Richmond. And after that, 
uh, you know, before that, Toyota, I think it only had one win. And after that is when Martin Truex Jr. started pouring on all the wins. Kyle Busch started pouring on wins. Uh, we haven't seen that from Chevy yet this year. We haven't seen Chevy pouring on the wins. Uh, the, the Chevy win that's happened this year was Austin Dillon in the Daytona 500, right, which is a restrictor plate track there. So uh, has not been a good year for Chevy, and I think they're going to continue to struggle. They really need to hit something, and they haven't found it. This point last year, Toyota had Chevy has not so far, so that's a bad sign for them going forward. Okay. It seems like with uh, Harvick starting near the back of the field, it would be harder uh, for him to dominate. But in this race, uh, you know, 600 miles, it seems as if this is a race in which we should be looking for dominators or we might see more dominators than usual. Uh, How many do we normally see at the 600? Yeah, so looking back at least the last, especially the last four years, uh, three of the years there have been three dominators um, who've you know led at least ten percent of the laps, and then you also factor in fastest laps. There's been like three dominators. Usually there's one major and kind of two minor dominators in those in three of those four races. The other one was the year Martin Truex Jr. led three hundred and eighty eight of the four hundred laps, uh, set an all time record for the number of miles led in a NASCAR race because. Right, 388 laps times a mile and a half essentially means he led all but, uh, or I think he led uh, all but 12 miles, I should say. I think it was uh, he led all but eight laps. So just absolutely bananas. Truex was that one year. Uh, don't think we're going to see that with the stages this year, of course. So you can probably discount that one. So I'm leaning more towards this will be a three dominator race, especially with the strategy going on. The stages that, you know, the four stages now instead of the, the three uh, for all the other races, I think could add an ele- element of strategy. And this just very often is a strategy race with the, the extra miles. So um, three dominators is what I prefer. Obviously, you can have some two dominator lines because that third dominator is, is kind of a more minor dominator. So like if he leads 10% of the laps, that's only 40 laps led, which is only 10 DraftKings points. Sure, he'll get some points for fastest laps. It might be another 10 or 15 or, or so. But he also still needs to finish high enough relative to his starting position to, to end up in the winning lineup. So I like two to three dominator lineups this weekend. You absolutely could splash in maybe a four dominator lineup, but uh, most likely two to three. Uh, and obviously, with Harvick being where he is starting, two dominators is very reasonable with Harvick making a back to front move and taking up a lot of that salary that you would be spending on dominators otherwise. And you know what that does? It does bring some Joe Dirt Cheap's drivers into play as well this weekend, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Okay. Uh, dominators in cash games versus GPPs. Uh, are you doing anything different there? Um, in cash games, you know, especially because you're playing Harvick, I think two dominators is probably what, the way you want to go. Fewer, you know, if you're playing cash, three dominators plus Harvick is very hard because then you're essentially going stars and scrubs. Uh, I will say the one thing that does work about stars and scrubs is the 25% incident rate, right? Overall. Uh, that gives them very real chance to move up 10 spots. So it is a very plausible roster construction, even for cash. But I think I want to go two dominators. You can get enough dominator points if you nail the top dominator of this race, right? If you get a driver who leads 40% of the laps, you know, that's 160 laps. So, uh, then you, you know, that's 40 DraftKings points. Um, that's huge. And then they get whatever finishing position and, 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 you know, fastest laps points as well. Uh, that's plenty, plenty points. So as long as you get the top dominator and have a very good uh, cash game lineup with you know place differential and finishing position, uh, I think you can get away with just getting the top dominator, 
having a second very likely dominator to ensure you get the top dominator, and they'll probably pick up some dominator points as well, even if it's just like fastest laps and a good finishing position. So um, I'm probably taking two, especially with the high DNF rate uh, or incident rate relative to some other tracks where you see 11 or 13% like we saw at Richmond's. Uh, things happen here, so you want to build in a little bit more safety and not pick as many drivers starting as far forward, uh, which leans me towards two drivers in in cash games. But definitely, I have I have no problem taking three dominator shots in GPPs. Okay, well, we haven't had the uh, the two post qualifying practices yet, but uh, who are the drivers right now that you are eyeing for domination? Well, I think you definitely have to go with the pole sitter Kyle Busch. Uh, obviously starts in the pole, and I don't think there's any real major threats to him in terms of early dominance. You've got Joey Logano starting second. Logano's had a great year, uh, but if you just look at the four mile-and-a-half tracks that we talked about and you remove the DNS, Logano's only got the sixth-best driver rating at those races. Obviously, Harvick first, Kyle Busch second. Brad Keselowski is the third-best driver rating, so he starts fifth. So I don't think uh, he'll necessarily catch Kyle Busch right away either. Uh, Denny Hamlin starts third, but Hamlin hasn't been a major factor at the mile and a half this year. He's only led 4% of the laps. And if you look at driver rating, uh, you know, he's much further down there as well. So uh, his driver rating is only 89.8. You compare that, like we said, to Kevin Harvick, who's 142, and then Kyle Busch at 118. Uh, really not a factor. So I think Kyle Busch is the dominator we want. Uh, if you want to look at a second dominator starting way up there, I definitely think it is Keselowski. I'd prefer Keselowski to Logano, even though Keselowski starts fifth. Logano starts second. Um, Keselowski has led 5.8% of the laps, Logano 3.2. And Keselowski a 113 driver rating, Logano is 101. So my order of dominators would be Kyle Busch, then Pratt, Brad Keselowski. And that's probably what I would go with my air quote cash game dominators at this point in time until we see practice. Okay, uh, aside from your top dominators and Harvick, who are the other drivers? Because I'm just going to steal your cash game lineup. Um, who are <laughs> the other drivers you are eyeing for cash games? Yeah, I think Clint Boyer, um, obviously starting 28th, makes a lot of sense. The question is, can you fit him in price-wise? Uh, are you able to fit in Kyle Busch, Brad Keselowski, Kevin Harvick, Clint Boyer, and then play some scrubs? So alternatively, you could you know go a different route, maybe forego one of the dominators, or maybe forego Boyer, not really sure, and uh, look at some other drivers there. Um, you know, we have talked about the Chevy struggles, but you do have Jimmy Johnson and Chase Elliott starting 22nd and 23rd. I think at least one of those drivers makes his way forward. But what I think you can do even better is kind of take a what we like to call in, in the fantasy football circles, we can do an arbitrage play on them and go Alex Bowman, who's essentially going to be the same as those guys, but at a cheaper price uh, in terms of his expected range of outcomes. And I think Alex Bowman is an interesting cash game play. Um, same equipment. Um, he's He's been just as good as these other drivers this year. So you look at uh, you look at Alex Bowman, he's a better driver rating than Jimmy Johnson on the mile and a half, and not much worse than Chase Elliott on these mile and a half this year. So, uh, I think you could go at a significant discount, Alex Bowman, instead of Chase Elliott or Jimmy Johnson. So if you wanted to go the direction of you know, going away from all of these, these high-priced drivers uh, and um, you know, maybe uh, still get those two dominators and not play Boyer, who's $9,400. I mean, Boyer's $9,400. Keselowski's $9,800. Kevin Harvick, $12,200. Kyle Busch, $11,100. I mean, let's just theoretically throw those four drivers in there. You have... Uh, you can't even fit in two scrubs because the average salary is 3750 So you can't even make that lineup. 
so alternatively, like I said, you go to somebody like Alex Bowman, who's 8,000 versus Jimmy Johnson, 8,700 and Chase Elliott, 9,500. That's definitely some salary relief. So I like Alex Bowman and cash games this weekend. Uh, and then, you know, if you do go that route where you go Alex Bowman, um, you know, then I think it, it certainly opens up some other avenues and uh, a driver that could be interesting just because he's cheap and starting, you know, 30th is AJ Allmendinger. Um, you, you know, I think that range right there with AJ Allmendinger starting 30th, Michael McDowell starting 29th, and Matthew Benedetto starting 31st will be the key to your cash game lineup this weekend. Which of those drivers do you play? Um, right now, I like Allmendinger just because I think he's got the best equipment. But certainly, he's $800 more expensive than McDowell, $700 more expensive than DiBenedetto. So it's going to be that range, I think, in cash games. Uh, you know, if you go the Bowman route, that you'll be looking at um, to kind of uh, get get a situation where you can get some expensive drivers in your lineup. Okay, for GPPs, which drivers are you looking at? Yeah, GPPs. I think um, obviously, if you go by the statistics here at this track, uh, one driver that I think is super or I shouldn't say this track, but the model statistics. One driver I think is super interesting is Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch, 111 driver rating, fourth best this year at the four mile and a half ovals that we've had, uh, removing DNFs for, for each of the drivers. So, um, cause obviously that kind of negatively skews their stats. Uh, so you look at the four mile and a half and remove DNFs from any driver who, who, who has DNF there, you know, had a major incident in those races. Kurt Busch, fourth best. 14% of the laps led. That's actually second most in the series, more than his brother Kyle Busch has had. And Kurt Busch starts a, a very nice 16th, so he can make his way forward. I, and, you know, I, obviously in the best manufacturer there, uh, I think Kurt Busch is a very nice play for GPPs this weekend. I think he's not going to get maybe a ton of attention. He kind of seems to fly under the radar a lot. And his price tag, 8300 very, very nice. So uh, Kurt Busch, definitely a driver I want to get exposure to this weekend um you can say kind of similar about uh, another driver in that same price range eric jones uh could he be like a really contrarian dominator i think it's possible i don't think he has to what it you know has what it takes to match kyle bush maybe doesn't have what it takes to match brad keselowski uh however he has led more laps at mile and a half removing dns than brad keselowski has in terms of percentage 6.4 to keselowski's 5.8 so there could be something there uh, obviously also with strategy and a lot of drivers getting their first win here. I think Eric Jones starting fourth, really sneaky contrarian dominator. I think a lot of people would ignore him in that fourth place starting position. So Eric Jones and Kurt Busch, uh, both in that 8K range, you know, that low 8K range, 8,300 for Busch, 8,200 for Jones. Um, great GPP plays this week. And I think for a little bit different reasons, Busch, you get the place differential. Eric Jones, I think you get a really contrarian dominator pick. All right, some people might be looking for a Stars and Scrubs roster construction approach this weekend. Are there any uh, Joe Dirt Cheap drivers who uh, you're eyeing? Yeah, who uh, kind of, I guess, tickle my fancy. Well, I think uh, J.J. Yaley is probably the driver there. He's min-price, 4400 starts 40th, so the only place he can go is up. And if he finishes the race, you can expect you know, maybe 8, 10, 12 drivers to finish worse than him just from having problems. So... Uh, J.J. Yaley, you know, obviously being min-salary, pairs perfectly with Kevin Harvick. What I think is an interesting strategy in GPPs, maybe playing J.J. Yaley without Kevin Harvick, and uh, if you know Kevin Harvick has a, a major incident or something like that. So I think Yaley plus Harvick will be very chalky, uh, but I think Yaley without Harvick 
or Harvick without Yaley will be more uh, contrarians. But I like you know that kind of combination there in GPPs. Um, definitely, I think JJ Yaley is the best play here. Uh, if you kind of just look in general at uh, really you know cheap drivers, who has the best r- driver rating at these mile and a halfs? Um, you know, you got Matt Benedetto at 44.3, like I talked about. Uh, McDowell at 53.8, and uh, you know, like I said, they're they're priced. Very nice price range, 5,700 and 5,600. But I think we're kind of shifting the Joe Dirt cheap range down to you know, 5,500 and less these days. And uh, in that range, I really, I kind of just like JJ Yaley. I mean, you can definitely take shots with some of these other drivers. Um, if you look at if you look at their driver rating at mile and a half this year, Greg Galding has a better driver rating than Landon Castle, Ross Chastain, uh, and it's almost even with Matthew Benedetto. So Greg Galding could also be maybe a sneaky place starting 34th if we have a lot of attrition. But, uh, yeah, I think my favorite play is maybe playing Yaley without Harvick if you want to do something like that. And that way you can get in Kyle Busch or Keselowski or, or you know, some of these other big-name drivers. Logano starts second, certainly, has a chance to dominate. Blaney starting eighth has a chance to dominate. Uh, we talked about Boyer starting 28th. Elliott being a, a possible place, differential place, starting 22nd. There's still a lot of expensive drivers that are very playable. And I think J.J. Yaley without Harvick is a very interesting contrarian play this weekend. All right, this is maybe the longest NASCAR podcast we've ever done, but I'm going to make it longer with a couple of questions. Um, Kevin Harvick didn't make a qualifying lap because he failed inspection, correct? Uh, Correct. So, um, well, Harvick... um, So... (laughs) Harvick failed three times and did not get to go. And, and the only other person who didn't make a qualifying lap was J.J. Yaley. So everybody else passed inspection. Harvick was the only one who had these issues this weekend uh, with, you, with, with Yaley. Have you ever um, done any sort of study? And I'm not exactly sure how you would do this, but any sort of study to see how drivers do when they fail inspection? Uh, I actually haven't, but that would be interesting. And it's pretty easy to pull up at least the last two years' worth of data. So that's something, um, you know, like last year we talked about the compound, the the resin or the VHT or the whatever HP1 stuff. Uh, And we looked at that and we saw it did make for a little bit better racing at those those races, more passes. So um, that's something we could definitely do this year. All right, and then – so one one other random thing. So Harvick won the the all-star race. Uh, I kind of doubt that there is any correlation between how someone races because it's just a totally different setup, but how someone races at the all-star race uh, at Charlotte and then how they race the next weekend at the exact same track. But have you ever looked at that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I have not looked at that with the all-star race, but the reason is because there's so many different rules with the all-star race. And, uh, this year especially was maybe the biggest difference ever between the cars in the all-star race and the cars in the 600. Yeah. So, so talk about the all-star race. We had that last weekend. NASCAR introduced a new package, uh, designed to promote, you know, quote unquote, like on track competition. Talk about the specifics of the package and uh, what you thought of the all-star race, and then uh, what the prospects moving forward are for any changes with the package. Yeah, so um, NASCAR threw some major changes into this. They kind of took what happened with the Xfinity cars last year at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They wanted to drum up some interest in Indianapolis and excited to experiment on it with the Xfinity cars, threw restrictor plates on those cars, uh, for you know the Indy 500, not the Indy 500, the the Indy Xfinity race, 
Uh, and they did the same thing here at Charlotte with the cup cars for the all-star race. They threw restrictor plates on them. Um, additionally, they increased the size of the rear spoiler, which uh, obviously increases the drag, and that blows a bigger hole in the air to allow more drafting. Uh, so they increased the size of the rear spoiler. And another thing they did was they added air ducts into the front of the cars and had those air ducts pump air out of the front re- front wheel wells of the car uh, to change downforce levels on, you know, in the car there. Um, and all of that made for some really interesting races. You saw AJ Allmendinger, you know, in the open race, which is kind of the qualifying race for the, the all-star race, drive through the field and pass some, you know, he passed some JGR cars. He passed some Stuart Haas racing cars. He passed some Hendrick cars and ultimately won the third segment of that open race. Uh, Alex Bowman won the first segment, Daniel Suarez, the second segment. And then, in the open, you know, or in the main event, I should say, he drove all the way up, challenging kind of close to the lead, top three or four cars, nearly had a chance to take the lead. This is A.J. Allmendinger. I mean, a guy we're never talking about leading other than actual restrictor plate races. That said, it wasn't your restrictor plate pack racing. Um, everybody was kind of near each other, but uh, it wasn't like pack racing. You weren't like two and three wide the whole time. Uh, but uh, you could definitely, you know, I, there were definitely uh, ways to separate yourself in terms of, of aerodynamics still which i thought was a little interesting um but certainly it was an exciting race a lot of passes for the lead a lot of passes throughout the field uh, nascar released the statistics and and just judging by the fan reaction on twitter uh was well received um but there is a faction of fans who think it's manufactured racing so what i think going forward is we probably won't see anything in uh the rest of this year because of uh the charter agreement ever since they started doing the charter thing there's been a charter agreement there will be no major changes to the package mid-season. Uh, so I think that you know document uh, is is very hard to break that document without buying from all of the the charter owners. Um, so I think it's unlikely we'll see changes in 2019, but don't rule it out. Or sorry, not 2018, 2018. But don't rule it out for maybe a race or two. But if it does happen in a race or two, it would not be during the playoffs. Historically, NASCAR has shied away from making package changes that will be raced in the playoffs so we'll see the same packages here in the playoffs but what we could see maybe is something like uh you know um a a race at michigan or something like that or maybe a race at pocono that tests this package because those races are not in the playoffs um and and so maybe we see like a one-off or a two-off test like we saw a few years ago when they tried a high downforce package at michigan and uh at one other race i think it was kentucky or something like that so there's certainly a possibility we could see it at one race this year, maybe two. Um, but I, even then, I think that's a very remote possibility because of the charter agreement. More than likely, what we'll see is we'll see it on an experimental race basis for a couple races next year. And if that goes well, maybe it, it, it permeates a little further into a few of those mile-and-a-half tracks. But I don't think it'll be a full-time package. Uh, I think it'll be maybe a, a package that we see in NASCAR for a few select races like we'll see with the Xfinity series now at Indy uh, going back to this package. I think they'll continue to do that every year. All right. Uh, this has been an epic show. Uh, any final items that you have? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's definitely been an epic show. I didn't even think this would take an hour, but uh, we, we got off to some good stuff here and it's uh exciting weekend. So I think the last takeaway you should take from this weekend is enjoy all the races, kick back, have a brew, make some food, uh, and uh, yeah, enjoy the races. It is absolutely a great spectacle weekend. You know, we say Indy 500 is the greatest spectacle in racing, but this whole weekend is going to be a, a spectacle. 
and uh, make sure you absorb it all. But also, uh, you know, good luck to everybody. It's it's it definitely pay attention to practice on Saturday. That's the other thing I have to say. Pay attention to both of those practice sessions. Uh, and one other thing is, you know, those practice sessions will be kind of in the morning. Uh, I do think it's possible the the early practice session maybe is more informative than the second you know the second Saturday practice session just because it should be in cooler weather at at 9 a.m. than at 11 a.m. Uh, where where the day will start to heat up and then the race is at night where it's going to be cooler weather again so pay attention to both practice sessions I think this coming weekend. All right, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily for Nick Kiffin on Twitter at Rotodoc. I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Let's consider the secret life of the innermost nesting doll. Living most of her life in the dark inside the other nesting dolls, she has plenty of time to think, if she could. Sadly, she has no brain. However, when an innermost nesting doll hears that Geico not only saves people money, but also has been providing great service for over 75 years, she thinks it's obvious you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Pity the innermost nesting doll and her lot in life. This September at local area Subway restaurants, your meal purchase will help our neighbors in need. Purchase a sub drink and chips and help us donate 200,000 meals to local Feeding America food banks. Subway meal includes any sub salad or wrap with any drink and chips or two cookies. For every two meals purchased through September 30th, participating Subway restaurants will donate one meal up to 200,000 meals to San Francisco and East North South Bay Area food banks. One meal is the monetary equivalent of 10 cents. Meals secured by Feeding America on behalf of local member food banks. So pick up a great meal and make a difference in the community. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.